Good morning, everyone. This is Jeffy Kennedy, and I'm here with my first cup of coffee. It is Friday, June 5th, and it's been a week here in the U.S. It feels like every week has been a week, but this has definitely been a week. Uh, that's why I have not been podcasting this week. I've been deliberately staying quiet um, to give room for black voices. But today I am going to put up the interview that I recorded on Monday with Grace Draven. Um, and so you'll have to ignore some of the information in there because we said things before we knew that things were going to shift so mildly with Trump's speech on Monday afternoon. So um, for an update... Grace's book, Dragon Unleashed, is still being released on Tuesday, June 9th, but her event at Katie's Budget Books will be on June 10th. Uh, and then I think I've already told you all, but just to let you know that my event that was supposed to be on Monday, June 1st, is now moved to Thursday, June 11th. And with no further Further, no further ado, no further ado, I will uh, let you all listen to the interview with Grace. I think it's pretty wonderful. Hope you all are doing well. Take care. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to First Cup of Coffee with Jeffy Kennedy. Today is Tuesday, June 2nd, though I'm actually recording this in the past on June 1st. I'm sitting here with a cup of water for once and talking with my wonderful friend, Grace Draven. Say hello, hello Grace. Hello, everybody. <laughs> we are uh, sitting on our... Where, where are you sitting, Grace? Are you inside or out? I'm actually inside my oldest daughter's room. I'm currently holding <laughs> her laptop, so I'm at her desk. <laughs> she has a good daughter. I do. She even left her sweet dog, Wendell, here to keep me company. So that's a good oh, thing. That is a good thing. And and do you have a beverage? I do. As a matter of fact, this is my first cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and audience, I'll have you know that it is 3 o'clock in the afternoon at Grace's house. Yes, it is. <laughs> in my defense, I stayed up until 4 o'clock this morning. So <laughs> oh, I can't My, believe that you do that and you're just unreal. I used to not. I used to actually keep regular hours, you know, where you know I went to bed at the latest, probably about midnight or one. But now things are really thrown off and my circadian rhythm is off and I get up at all strange hours and yeah, it's it's totally messed up. Well, part of this is because and I know because we have lots of conversations at other times that we're not recording things uh but that you that it's sometimes a struggle for you to find quiet time to write yes very much so uh we have a very active household there's five of us and three dogs and there's just a whole lot going on um my son is usually wanting something and you know with him being autistic, it isn't like he can go get things himself. So we're running interference with that. 
uh, the team. Or it's a disaster going, if he does go get it himself. Oh my gosh, yes. I, I, there was a good example of that is one time he thought he was going to be self-sufficient and microwave his own popcorn, except that he set the timer for 40 minutes it just so oh, happened. No. Yes, it just so happened that I walked into the kitchen at the time while it was still popping, and then happened. And I was thinking to myself, I didn't hear Sophia, that's my other daughter, come in here. And sure enough, it was my son who'd put it in there. And I happened to glance at the time, and I thought, Wait a second, <laughs> <laughs> what is this? Like thirty nine minutes left on this? I'm like, Oh my god! So yeah. Anyway, that. That's just one of the things that keep things busy in the household. Um, TV's going. Everybody has their own projects. I have three rambunctious, you know, male dogs. So, you know, it just, it gets wild. So, it's And nice. you have a rambunctious male husband. I do. He's running around doing his own thing a lot of times, but he'll come in and he's got things to say and, you know, wisdoms to impart and advice to give and nagging to subject me to. <laughs> but, you know, when it's at night and things have calmed down and everybody's more or less retired to their rooms, even if they're not going there to sleep, it does tend to become a more peaceful household. And that's when I'm actually at my most productive. It just so happens to be that tends to fall around two to three o'clock in the morning. Wow. Yeah, I, and I'm always laughing at Grace because I will um, be. She'll ask me if I could take a phone call, and I'm like, "Well, I'm heading to bed in half an hour. What are you doing?" And she's like, "Well, I'm just now cooking dinner, so." <laughs> <laughs> and she's an hour ahead of me. <laughs> yes, exactly. I know. Whenever you tell me that, I think to myself, "Wow, she goes to bed really early." When actually, I have to roll it back and think, "No, she goes to bed at." the hour that normal people go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> Those of us who aren't day walkers, right? We're... Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you, um, you've been working very hard on the third book in your trilogy. Correct. And tell us about this trilogy. Ah, okay. So <clears throat> the trilogy itself is called, um, the Fallen Empire. And the three books in the trilogy are, um, well, I'll start, I guess I'll start with, I was about to say number three, you know, because that's the one that's stuck in my head at the moment. We'll start with number one, you know, back to the beginning. But we have, <laughs> there's Phoenix Unbound, which came out in 2018. And then uh, Dragon Unleashed, which comes out June 9th of this year. And the one I'm working on now, number three, which concludes the trilogy, is uh, Raven Unveiled. And that is the one that I am eyeball deep in at the moment, trying to get everything completed and finished up and turned over so to I, the editor. I, I hadn't asked before we got on the phone how you were doing about that deadline. Oh, I've already had to uh, contact my agent and say, can you please tell the editor I need three more weeks? So, uh. yep. I've had a couple of sticking points and a couple of major, what I consider major changes in uh, the actual narrative, you know, for what I want to introduce as a main conflict point. And it doesn't significantly change up the story, really. I mean, we're, it all falls within the same plot line and so forth. It's just a sort of switch some of the focus. I'm glad I discovered it now 
instead of oh. after I turned the book in, because this was a similar situation to Dragon Unleashed, and I discovered it after I turned it in, and the editor came back and said, can you make a couple of changes here? Well, her changes were small, but they were significant, and once I made the changes, it messed up the foundation of the book, so I had to rewrite it. So I'm trying to avoid that exact same scenario with uh, Raven Unveiled. This is one of those things that can happen um, when you're a pantser, and I am absolutely a pantser. So uh, I, I try to tell people, don't do like me. <laughs> At least throw <laughs> in some form of plot if you possibly can before you get too deep into it. So. And we have the same agent, the the delightful Sarah Younger. Yes. And what did Sarah say when you called her? She, poor Sarah. I've done this to her a couple <laughs> of times. In fact, I think I've done this to her every time. <laughs> she, you know, she more or less tells told me to please tell me you have at least fifty thousand words down. I said yes, I have more than fifty thousand words down. <laughs> and that's strong for Sarah. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. And I, I had to reassure her that I had no intention of re rewriting this book. <laughs> it, that was, I am glad I did it for Dragon Unleashed. It needed to be done. But at the same time, I, my brain was cooked by the time yeah. I finished up that second round. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I can vouch for that because I was there hearing about a lot of it. And that just about just about killed you. Yes, very much so. I was pretty hard into, you know, burnout. And then I didn't waste any time, honestly, with jumping on to both uh, the Epos King and and uh, Raven Unveiled. I had to immediately get started on both of them, actually. And so I, I'm I'm mentally a little tired, uh, but, you know, I, I see a way to the end, <laughs> which is good. <laughs> But it's all worth it. I still love my job. Yeah, yeah, that's a good job. Absolutely. Um, are you able to work on more than one project as a, at a time? You were talking about writing both Epos King and Raven Unveiled. Oh, yes. Actually, that helps me. Um, I usually will always work on at least two projects at the same time just because if I hit sort of a, I don't know, I don't want to say writer's block because I don't think I really suffer from that. Uh, I do hit some sort of stopping or slow points or whatever where I have to step back from the story so that I can see my way clear to it again. And when I do that, though, I still want to remain productive. And so I just switch over to another story that I'm working on. And a lot of times by doing that, it will, you know, sort of clear that obstacle in the road with the other story. So oh. one helps the other. So, yes, I typically will work on two stories at the same time. Every once in a while, three. That's what, that, that's amazing. I can't do that. Yeah, I, I that's that's how I, it works for me. For some reason, I'm not a, and I'm not at all linear either. When I write, uh, I don't tend to go like chapter one, two, three, four. I might write chapter one, and later on I write chapter four, and I jump back to two and three. Then I may race ahead to seven. So yeah, I'm I just don't even there. understand you. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, you've mentioned a few times that you think that is the craziest way to do things. <laughs> Have I ever told you that, Grace? <laughs> Once or twice. 
Well, I mean, you also do weird things like you write all the dialogue first. Yes, absolutely. I write all the dialogue first and then I'll put like tags um, in there that may say that remind me, okay, this scene is certain is located here. Here's where it's anchored. And so that anchor note in, will tell me something like, okay, conversation taking place in a temple or, you know, uh, this is occurring right before battle number one or something like that. And then I can go back and build the scenery around the dialogue. I have to have my dialogue down before I can nail down the whole story, if that makes any sense. It's the shell that I build so that I can fill, I can fill in everything else. And I hand write it all. Yeah. Yeah, all, so many crazy things. I can't believe that you handwrite it all. Yes, I do. I have notebooks and notebooks and notebooks of handwritten stuff that I, only I can read because I have the world's worst penmanship, except for my <laughs> sister. My sister's penmanship is worse than mine. <laughs> you two presumably learned from the same teacher. Uh, you know, I would like to say I could blame that on you know, a particular teacher, but I can't even do that. In fact, when I was in high school, I was in vocational drafting, and I had had the most beautiful, precise print. You had to. That was just something that was taught right. in drafting. Uh, well, that's gone by the wayside, way by the wayside. <laughs> so both my cursive and my print is absolutely terrible. There was one time that I had one of my notebooks out and um, Alona Andrews uh, were visiting the house and were having dinner with us. And Gordon happened to pick up the notebook and he was flipping through it. And I told him, I said, well, that's uh, Dragon Unleashed. So he was trying to read it and he finally gave up and put it down. <laughs> and I should should clarify for those who don't know that the author, Ilona Andrews, is the husband and wife writing team of Ilona and Gordon. Correct. Yeah, so just in case people were confused by that. Yeah, glad you brought that up. Yes, definitely. Yeah, it's not one person, it's two. They they are a powerhouse team. It's amazing how well they work together um, and watching their creative process or hearing about it is really interesting seeing that, you know, that duo work together, especially as a husband and wife. As much as I love Mr. Draven, there is no way I would write with him. For one, he wants me to kill everybody. <laughs> <laughs> is that one of the pieces of advice he gives you every time he's like we'll just kill it off i'm like wait it's a romance with an hea so why would i do that this is just like his solution to plot problems pretty much i would just kill him okay thank <laughs> you for no help yeah thanks a lot no in his defense, though, he is a most excellent technical advisor, and he will block a scene with me that, you know, it's like no holes barred kind of thing. If I tell him, all right, this guy fell off the horse, he's rolling this way, he will literally roll on the floor while holding a sword. You know, he will run and jump over things, and he gives me all kinds of great advice for weaponry and armor and shows me how to use a blackjack and where you can... Uh, you know, hit certain pressure points. And so we'll walk or, you know, move through all these scene blocking bits and pieces that really, I think, bring these scenes to life because, you know, he's doing this right there, real time. So I get a better sense of what it looks like, how it feels, 
yeah, he's, he's very good information as far as that's concerned. So I really do depend on him for that. I just know for a fact I will never be co-writing with him because everybody would be dead. <laughs> and, and does he help you block the sex scenes as well? Now that I would probably have to walk back and say, la, 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 la. Although, you know, it's interesting, though, that you when you bring that up, the idea of physicality, <clears throat> and that is in some instances, say I have um, a hero who is one height and a heroine who is another. Uh, a lot of times if somebody is hugging and you're trying to describe where, say, their face lands, okay? And this is this Britian and Ildico from Radiance? It's really any of my characters. Uh, so, for huh? example, Britian and Ildico, there is a significant height difference there. Okay, so when he hugs her and she hugs him, where she presses her cheek is going to be very different from where, say, like Anne Housset and Saravec would hug. You know, Ildico would probably be pressed up against Brishan's sternum. Okay, or which is pretty good. much how you and Patrick are, right? I exactly. Mean, so that I can figure not. out pretty easy. But if you've got a situation like with Anne Housset and Saravec, Saravec is a little bit taller than Anne Housset, but not by a lot. So where she would hug him, she could just sort of incline you know, her head down and literally rest it on his shoulder. So there's a big difference there. And a lot of times I have to sort of get a sense of how that feels. You know, I know how it looks, but I need to know how it feels. So in some cases, what I'll do is I'll go grab a footstool and tell Patrick, <laughs> okay, I need you to stand there. I'm going to get on this footstool and we need to hug and I need to figure out where this is, where I land when I hug you. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> and then he patiently puts up with being hugged on. Yes. You know, it takes one for the team and all that. Yeah. <laughs> In the service of the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it is kind of in service of the book because you're pretty much supporting your family with your writing at this point, aren't you? Yes. Yes, absolutely. That's our principal income. Yeah. I, I like to bring that up because I even this weekend at a Nebula conference, a question on one of the panels was, well, are any of you making a living at this? And I think it's good to talk about people who are making a living as a writer. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's one of those things because you have to look at it from a broader sense as well. I think there's a lot of times a murkiness that goes with um, – making a living from quote unquote an art okay whether that be painting whether that be book writing something like that um <clears throat> and the idea that oh well this should be free or you know why don't you give some of this away it's like well i'm not a trust fund baby and this is the income that's coming in this as artistic as it may be considered or you know in a category of entertainment for those people who are reading and so forth for those of us who are the creators of it, in many instances, that's what pays the bill. You know, that's the practicality of it. You know, I write this book, I sell a unit, you know, that goes toward paying my utilities. It goes toward the trash pickup. I've got a, uh, a kid in college, you know, things like that. It's my mortgage payment. It's all those basic, boring, mundane things that a regular nine to five, you know, uh, twice monthly or biweekly paycheck you know, covers by royalties do the same thing. It's the paycheck. So, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's the income that comes in. It's for us. Yep. 
That's how we make well, our money. That's how we pay our bills is my books. And, and this was not always the case, right? You didn't like do a, a JK Rowling or a Sarah J Moss and make millions off of your first book right away. Right. Oh God, girl from your lips to God's ears. If that should ever happen. <laughs> No, actually, uh, the way it started out, I mean, if we roll it all the way back to how I started with the writing, uh, I actually started doing it as a hobby and I started writing fan fiction. And that was way back in like 2003. So, you know, I just really and, and did it. We, we have to know what kind of fan fiction. Oh, gosh. OK, so I wrote in multiple universes, but the one that I started out in was Harry Potter. Uh. Yes. And then I went on from there. I did Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Stargate Atlantis, Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, so different ones. It was a great way to sort of stretch my writerly wings and practice the craft, you know, and just sort of get used to it. And then I moved on to original stuff, submitted. No, wait, wait. Before you move on. Yep. Uh, so, so like, what inspired you to start writing the fan fiction? I mean, did you really start doing it in order to develop your writerly chops? Or did you, like, pick up Harry Potter and get so wrapped up in it that you thought, I need to do something? Oh, definitely more of the second. Um, not at all for the first. That It was never my intention to sort of, you know, my original intention to build up on the writerly skills. <clears throat> it was more... You, you didn't grow up thinking you wanted to be a writer someday. No, not at all. Yeah. No. So you had a job, right? You had like a technical job. I did actually um, very knee deep in number crunching. I was a financial analyst and then I was an audit coordinator. So my job was to represent uh, clients whose uh, retirement plans were under audit by either the Internal Revenue Service or the Department of Labor. So I would meet with the auditor with all the necessary information. And that's, like I said, I represented the client, so the client didn't have to meet with the auditor. And so, you know, I went through that. So I was much more involved in financial analysis and tax regulations. Oh, Very okay. different from what I'm doing now. <laughs> yeah. So you're working your corporate day job. Yep. And you get the, you pick up a copy of Harry Potter. How'd that happen? Oh, well, you know, it was such a phenomenon. And I thought, well, I'm going to read it because it looks really cool and interesting. And I loved the books. I thought they were great. And then I, um, I knew the existence of fan fiction just because, <clears throat> When I was in college and worked at a Walden Books, periodically we would have a table in the vendors room and at the various uh, conferences, most of them at the time that I went to was all the Star Trek conventions, but you had a mix of things in the vendor rooms and there were some tables there uh, that were actually selling fan fiction that was like, bound up in the little spiral notebooks and so forth. <laughs> yes, indeed. And uh, they had all kinds, like, you know, it was stacks of them and it was various universes that they had out there. So I knew of fan fiction, you know, and I can't remember, honestly, why I decided to seek out Harry Potter fan fiction. I was very much um, uh, fascinated by the character of Severus Snape because I thought he was the most complex character of all the characters that J.K. Rowling had uh, created in her world. And oh. The plethora of fan fiction out there was pretty amazing from, you know, a, a standard 
you know, romance kind of thing all the way up to the weird and wonderful and bizarre. So, and I read a bunch of it and then I was like, you know what, I'm going to try my hand at writing it just for fun. And it was fun. We had a really good, I had a really good time with it and met, uh, there's a huge community and I still have several friends who I met through that community that we remain close friends today, you know, and they themselves are writers and, you know, doing their own original stuff too. So that's how it all started. And then in 2005, I submitted a short story to a now defunct uh, small digital publisher called Amber Quill Press. And uh, it was part of like a contest submission thing. And I was one of the ones who won the contest, got the contract, and that's what started me on publishing. And then in 2000... So you haven't like tried any other like agents or anything like that at that point? You just saw this contest and thought, what the hell? Yes, pretty much. Yeah, I really was not interested or didn't even, it wasn't even on my radar to try and go onto the query trail with agents or anything like that. So I thought, well, I'll just put in this little short story and see. So it wasn't until about 2007, I think, or eight, that I actually put a couple, I only really put one or two things out there. And that was Master of Crows. And it actually received, um, more than a few requests for either the first three chapters or the entire story. So, I and this was still at Amber Quill, right? Yes, this was, and this is while I was at Amber Quill. I had not yet published Master of Crows with them. I just wanted right. to test it, you know, uh. through the query trail and see. And it actually got some good responses. I forgot really why I chose to go ahead and run it through Amber Quill. Uh, I don't remember, but no. I do remember that. When I sent it off um, uh, to one agent, and it was actually C.L. Wilson's uh, prior, one of her prior, her prior agent. I think she has a different agent now. And, oh, that, that agent came back with a pretty blistering letter that told me, you know, Ooh. before you send me anything else, how about you learn how to write? <laughs> no. Yes. I was wow. like, okay, then. Yeah. Everybody else was very polite. You know, they were like, yeah. well, it has, it has this, but at this time, you know, and you know, we can't really do anything with it. Or I think this needs a little bit more work. And honestly, at that point in time as well, CL Wilson stuff was um, unique in that it was marrying the two tropes equally, you know, the, the two, no, I'm sorry, two genres, fantasy yeah. and romance. So, which I thought was marvelous. Um, However, a most from what I could see, the responses I was getting back was that agents would said they were going to have a very hard time trying to publish something like that because it hadn't yet come into its own. Right. You know. The, yeah, Teal Wilson could do fantasy romance because she was sort of doing. She was already established. Yeah. Yeah. So it was you know harder to do it that kind of way. So you know anyway, I ended up I gave it to Amber Quill and they published it. And that was in 2009. In 2011, at that point, you know, self-publishing was really starting to open doors for, you know, doing your own thing, so to speak. So I went ahead and I got the rights back on Master of Crows, republished it or self-published it with um, a cover by Louisa Golly. And that's the current cover we see now. And um, which is way better than the cover it had at Amber Quill. Well, you know, it's very, it's very reflective of the 
types of covers I wanted because the first one was done with manipulation of stock photos. And for me yeah. personally, I always wanted to do fantasy romance with illustrated covers. And that's what I continue to stick with for the most part now. Um, and so having that illustrated cover from Louisa, who had done it for me for promotional purposes, oh, I could not wait to get that cover on the book. And I think that that second cover contributed hugely to an increase in sales. People love that cover. It's a beautiful cover. It is. I absolutely love it. Lou is so talented. I've been very blessed to work with her and um, Isa Sousa. And you know, they, they both have produced some amazing works for me. That one, Master of Crows, is just, it's really just the most wonderful cover. I absolutely love it. I have it. Um, I have a print of it that she signed and it's framed and I still need to hang it up. We've moved from one house to another, so it's currently wrapped up, but I can't wait to hang it up and show it off. <laughs> <laughs> so then Master of Crows is sometime in there. I read Master of Crows because people had been reading my 12 Kingdoms books and maybe even the Covenant of Thorns books and told me to, I think this was actually during Covenant of Thorns for me and said, Oh, you and Grace are writing similar things. You should read this Master of Crows. And I read it and thought it was phenomenal. Thank you. It's still my favorite. Well, I just have a, a soft spot for Silhara, I think. <laughs> He's such an asshole sometimes. <laughs> I loved writing him. He was he was a writer's gift, is what he was, because he popped up in my head. I mean, full blown, completely made and realized, fully created. And it was just a matter of you know this character booming in my ear. You know, write muggle bitch and write me. So, <laughs> so he was an easy so character to write. So then you had success with Master of Crows, and mm -hmm. you decided to keep going with the self-publishing. I did. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, sometimes I see, or not so much now, but uh, probably up until about maybe last year and so forth, a lot of authors would qualify that they liked doing self-publishing because they were, quote-unquote, control freaks. Uh, I am not a control freak. However, what I like about self-publishing is the flexibility that goes with it. I do like having control over uh, all the aspects of it and not because of the control itself, but for the fact that I can pivot at any point in time based upon circumstances at that moment, because I do control all of that. I've not given up the right to do so. And so right. I can change how I distribute. I can change how I price. I can switch out a cover. I can do some editing, you know, make some additional corrections, you know. So there's a lot of pros that goes that go with that. There are cons to it as well because you wear a lot of hats, as you well know, um, when you self-publish. There's a lot that goes on. You are constantly on the learning curve. Things are changing all of the time. You are on your own. Uh, you don't have any kind of like backup defense. There um, is no publisher who is going to act in. Um, your stead on something so it's it's all on you but at the same time the fact is that it is all you so you do have the ability to move quickly change fast make you know 
whatever adjustments you have to do based upon the circumstances at the time. So that's one of the things I really, really love about self-publishing. So, so after Master of Crows, you made a fortune and quit your day job. <laughs> I don't know that I made a fortune, but I quit the day job. And actually, it wasn't after <laughs> Master of Crows. It was interesting because it was sort of a gradual kind of thing. I went from working, you know, full time and writing on the side. And then I was working uh, part time and writing on the side. And then I was, I quit the day job and was writing full time. So, so what prompted you to quit the day job finally? Uh, probably with the release of Radiance because that took off like gangbusters unexpectedly. I did right. know at that point I was bringing in enough money before Radiance went live to um, bring in a second income. My husband's uh, job was still the primary income. However, it was at that point, once I did a cost analysis, that based upon the money that I was bringing in from the sale of books compared to the part-time work and the hours I was spending on the day job, it was actually going to be better for me to go ahead, quit the day job, and devote those hours to writing more stuff because then I would make more money at that point. And so it was a good decision to make because when I made that decision and quit, uh, that was uh, December of 2014. Radiance went live uh, January 6th of 2015. And boy, it was like all thrusters go. Yeah. That book was an amazing success. And you, got, you and I have often discussed that you don't really know why. Yeah, to be honest, I, I really don't, because if I did, you can bet your butt I would be repeating it every chance I got. <laughs> so, yeah, I really don't know. To me, it's the story is a marriage of convenience. OK, and that's really what its trope is, you know, and granted, it has um, a marriage of convenience between uh, a human and a humanoid. You know, a species is set in a pre-industrial fantasy world. Nothing, I mean, honestly, as much as I would love to say I'm so original, there's nothing about any of that that's original. Plenty of marriage of convenience and stories have been written. Plenty of interspecies fantasy couples have been created. Um, so, honestly, I, I just don't know what resonated, but I'm very glad it did. Yeah. Yeah, and I, it, it's neat because once you gain a huge audience like that from a book, you, you can't control the lightning, but then once you have that audience, it really levels things up for you. It does. It, it's like you're working on a different kind of playing field at that point in time, and certainly you know, it really does ring true when they say, you know, is, is it you're, as good, you're only as good as your last book? Is that how they say it? <laughs> Or is it? Like, yeah, I, I think so. It is? Yeah. So, of course, the expectations are high. And so you're thinking to yourself, oh, yeah, okay. So I have to come out with a second book that's just as good, if not better, than this one. No pressure there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. So, but that's okay because then you know it just it just makes you strive for more and work harder and do better because I think it's super important that. Well, and certainly in the self-publishing realm, 
that while you learn how to market and how to promote and how to uh, strategically place your ads and everything, the one and get that perfect cover, the one thing you have to always keep in mind is that you need to work on your craft. Always, you have to work on your craft. You have to, if you are a decent writer, you need to be a better writer. And if you're a better writer, you need to be a good writer. And a good writer, an excellent writer. So it, it, you always have to reach and strive for that level of craft work. So, you know. You so may, what do you do to improve your craft? <clears throat> uh, I have gobs of craft books that I, you know, use based upon either recommendations. And there's been some that I've ordered and read and thought, well, this isn't worth the paper it's, you know, typed on. So, um, and set those aside. So I do a lot of reading of various uh, craft books. I also will follow and read or listen to um, other authors who have been huge successes or even authors who may have been if not phenomenal successes are, you know, very much uh, entrenched in the world of publishing and have written some excellent books that I've thoroughly admired. And so, you know, a lot of times I'll see what did you do? What is it about your work that just um, really sticks with me? Why is this particular um, type of writing so, so good? And so I try to analyze that and pick it apart and see where my particular weaknesses are that I can strive to do better. Yeah, I think um, reading other authors is one of the best ways to yeah to improve. Absolutely. Because there, you'll see strengths and weaknesses in them as well. You'll have some who are brilliant, brilliant uh, dialogue creators and maybe a little thin on world building and other ones where it's the flip. You know, the world building is phenomenal, you know, but it could be that the dialogue needs a little work or it could be that they're good on both of them, but could be better, you know, that kind of thing. And so you, I cherry pick through that as well and see what is some, it's like it's pacing, it's structure, it's those who know exactly, you know, when to hit the right beat at the right time. You know, they just have a really good internal sense and rhythm about when that happens. So that kind of thing, I think, is super important. And it's true. The only way that, at least in my opinion, that you're going to spot that is by reading it. And if you read that, then you can apply it to your own work. And people often praise your world building. And I know that this is a difficult question to answer because I always have a hard time answering it. Mm -hmm. But... <laughs> but how do you go about your world building? Ah, uh, well, I figure world building is multiple things. It isn't just scenery. It's not just flowers and trees and mountains and you know. It's not. Wait, I'm no. doing it wrong. Yeah, right. <laughs> we all know that's not true. You, as a master world builder, know that is not true. <laughs> I think. Um, you have to see world building as much more organic than that and certainly uh, more en encompassing. It has to be everything. It can't just be the, the dress setting. You know, it's not just the props. It's everything. It has to be um, a person's occupation. It has to be a fallout from the occupation. It has to be societal expectations, ethics, mores, rules the whole shebang, that all has to blend in as part of the world building so that the person who's reading the book becomes immersed in the world. And it includes all those tiny, tiny things. 
you know, that take place. Our world, uh, you know, our current world is made up of those things as well. And so I think if you take that into account, you know, every, if you say everyday life for me is this and try to imagine it maybe in a different setting, in a different culture, in a different time period, then I think that's how you can really build that world out. I think it really is the devil's in the details. I, th I think you're absolutely right. It's just always interesting to hear someone else talk about it. And, and I think you really shine with the, the daily activities of like a non-tech world of doing the things like heating the water and cooking the food and gathering the food and all of these very domestic details. Yeah. And you know, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And one of the things that I try to um, keep in mind too, is that there are certain things that we in a more highly technological society during you know, a techno period can do and take for granted or certain things that were hard work back then. I mean, the, the, the act of just surviving day by day in a pre-industrial society was, you know, labor intensive, uh, washing your clothes, you know, that, th that wasn't easy. <laughs> um, putting food on the table, that wasn't easy either, you know, things like that. And we, a very good example, and I'll bring this up is that, and it was the person. Is this the dog washing? The dog washing. Oh my God. I, I love this example. I, this is like the perfect example of a 20th to 21st century reader taking for granted certain things that back then, if you're looking at a pre industrial age, would be both silly to do and really difficult to do. And that is in Master of Crows, um, the hero has a dog. <coughs> Pardon me. Who is? Uh, they always comment about how he stinks. Okay, he's a smelly dog. I was honestly, I was taken by surprise by how many people said, "Oh my gosh, why doesn't he bathe that dog?" Okay, <laughs> and I thought, why in the world would he bathe that dog? It's like let's okay. Then I thought, okay, I I get why people are asking this question because for us, it's easy to bathe the dog. You just sort of unfurl that water hose, you turn on that spigot, and you wash your dog, okay? Or you drop them off at the groomer, at the right? Groomer. You know? Right, exactly. Like, there's really no reason for your dog to stink. <laughs> but back then, in this time frame, uh, in this world, and in this particular place and setting, uh, this hero lives uh, in, I guess if you wanted to use sort of a, a scenery comparison, probably the plain of Spain just outside of Madrid. So we're looking at semi-arid conditions, okay? And suffering from a drought. And so if you're using your water to keep, hopefully, your orchard of oranges alive, which is your income, that's what brings in the money to keep your state going and keep you and your staff fed, and water's running low, and you only have a well, and you have so many other things you have to do. You have to take care of livestock. You've got to basically farm. You have to do laundry and all these other millions of things that, you know, either require water or if they don't, they require your time and your effort. The last thing oh, and you're going fight to off an angry God. You what? And fight off an angry God. And fight off an angry God. The last thing that's <laughs> going to be on your list of important things to do is bathing your dog. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so things like that, you have to take those certain things into account as well. So it's interesting to see that was that glimpse, that window of seeing how a, you know, a modern day reader might take our particular comforts for granted. You know, and back then that would have just been an amazing thing to just be able and grab some kind of a hose and have ready access to water and, you know, go ahead and wash your dog. If you try to say that to somebody during that time frame, I think they would look at you like you were insane. <laughs> so, but yeah, world building, I think, has to start. I mean, you're always going to have the big things. You know, you have to know distances between cities or you have to get a sense of that. You have to have sort of a, a, a map of your world in your mind. But I think world building really does start with the tiny, tiny details. So it's a lot of research that goes into things as well. Like, you know, you use two different types of spinning wheels, depending on whether or not you are spinning thread from flax or if you're doing it from wool. You know, those kind of tiny things. If somebody is spinning in the grease is what they call it. That's like with Master, not Master Crows, but in Treat Me, um, the heroine has very soft hands because even though she's not a you know a noble woman she spins in the grease and so the lanolin from the wool keeps her hands soft and it's one thing that the hero comments on is how soft her hands are so those kind of things are all very important i think to world building as a whole because i think that's what makes it an immersive experience for the reader hmm. those are great points thank you so then let's take the camera out again to the path of your career after you did these several self-published books you decided to go trad for a while yes and that's this fallen empire the, yes. the fallen empire yeah, the, the fallen empire it's amazing how many fallen empire things are out there i didn't realize there were that many until i had submitted you know my suggestion for it and Let's see, Lindsay Baroker has uh, The Fallen Empires, and <laughs> somebody else has not The Fallen Empires. They have Fallen Empire, and then there's Fallen Empires, and so obviously it's a very popular term to use. <laughs> well, and, and then my trilogy ended up being The Forgotten Empires, which, you know, my publisher pretty much settled on, and I, I think I ended up messaging you and being, <laughs> like, are you going to be really annoyed if I have the Forgotten Empires while you have the Fallen Empire? <laughs> and you know me. I was like, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> but still, it's funny. That's why I always have to check if I am I thinking of your trilogy or mine. <laughs> right, exactly. Because, you know, we're both, since you and I have collaborated many times, we talk constantly about our stuff. We both write in the same, um, you know, genre of fantasy romance so it's sort of like hey did you use this is it all right if i use this for this <laughs> that's right because you you called me that one time about that you were gonna have a librarian character and you're like is she gonna be too close to your librarian character exactly yeah <laughs> it's like i think there's room for lots of librarians in the world yes and you know even with the names and so forth you know if there's going to be some overlap and honestly that kind of thing doesn't that does not bother me at all it's like yeah you know everybody well, i think what makes a writer most unique is not a name they pick or you know for a character or for a series or even for the title of a book i think it's the writer's voice 
and your voice is very distinctive and very different from mine. So you and yes. I can both have a character named Ursula. We can both have a character named Ambrose. We can both have our worlds take place in pre-industrial societies with kings and queens and, you know, all that other good stuff. But people will be able to very, very easily identify Jeffy Kennedy, the writer, and Grace Draven, the writer. That's true. But wait, wait. Do you have a character named Ambrose? Yes, and Entreat Me. He's a sorcerer. Shit, Grace, I didn't realize that. Honey, if, obviously if I didn't bring it up to you, it's because I don't care. <laughs> wow. I wonder if I did that subconsciously, though. I just, I did not remember that. So what? If, if we, just so you know, I have always loved the name Ursula, and I do have a character named Ursula in another upcoming book. Now, she's not a queen. <laughs> She's a bounty. She's a bounty hunter. So <laughs> very different. Well, I wonder if our Ambroses are the same because he's a very shifty guy. No, mine I mean, is super loyal to the um, to the warlord that he is sort of you know working with and has been sort of a, a family retainer for a long time. He and the heroine clash. Oh, that's you know I only read and treat me once, and it was a while ago. Right. Um, but yeah, I'm. I would say I would change it, but it's way too late. I can't believe you didn't call me when you read Orchid Throne and say what. <laughs> and you know why? Because it's just a name. Your Ambrose is yeah. very different from my Ambrose, so honestly, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> I know. Not I know. In my opinion. If you told me I'm going to change the name, I'd be like, "Do not change the name." So. So you don't mind that the hero of my upcoming novels named Selhara? No, honestly, I don't. <laughs> the only thing I would tell you is that, okay, that's a strange enough name that somebody might be a little confused by it. But you know what? If you want to use the name, use the name. <laughs> it's, it's not true, but uh, <laughs> I can remember Sahara. I just think that's so funny that I chose Ambrose. I think it was great. Uh -huh. And I love the character. So why not choose? It's a good name. It's it is. like, you know, just because one person used this particular name over here, it doesn't you know, mean it's their name and nobody else can use it. So help That's yourself, true. my dear. Yeah. All right. So that was, that. Was, sorry, everyone. That was like a total uh, <laughs> there. But you know what? I think it's a good thing because then you, um, an audience can also hear how this comes about. Why sometimes That's you true. see similarities appear. And no, it's not one author stealing from another author. It's just an author who says, hey, I like this name. And I just so happened another author at some point in time said, hey, I like this name. That's it. <laughs> That's all there is to it. <laughs> That's Nothing true. nefarious That's... about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you decided to go trad. Yes. And how did that come about? Oh, gosh. Okay, so when it must have been a couple of years ago, and I heard back from another author who was represented by the agency I'm with now who said that my agent liked my work and would I be interested in and, and I'm going to clarify that this was, again, Ilona Andrews. Yes. They're and busy. I, yes, yes. And so they are also with Nyla, or uh, the Nancy Yost Literary Agency. And they said that Sarah real, you know, liked my stuff, like uh, Radiance and so forth, and would I consider talking with her. And um, at first, 
I wasn't sure because traditional publishing just wasn't really on my radar at that time. But at the same time, I also understood its value in um, reaching out to audiences that I, as a self-publisher only, would probably have a difficult time reaching. And so um, it ended up, and you, as you well know, that I got in touch with her directly through you because you were at a convention with her. Yes. So it's 2017. Yep. So... And then after you spoke with her, uh, she and I started to correspond. And originally it was, uh, representation was, you know, limited to just, um, uh, this was on my part. She was happy to, you know, represent me on other stuff. But at first I just wanted to start out with things like foreign rights and sub rights. And then shortly after that, we were talking about it. And I said, you know, she said, well, if you have anything you think you might be interested in putting out on the query trail, let me know. And then we can go and do um, a submission for it. And I said, well, I do have something. And that's when I sent her um, the storyline for Phoenix Unbound. And originally the way that worked out, that was a standalone. And mm. it ended up being a trilogy because really that's what publishers were looking for at the time. They at least wanted two books. Preferably three. And so I um, I wanted to not only break into that audience I couldn't reach, you know, with just self-published work. And I also wanted to be able to uh, work with uh, Penguin Random House's um, editor, Ann Sowards, who is brilliant. And I she is. I, she's awesome. She is. She's amazing. And so... Um, I was very fortunate to uh, contract under Penguin and work with Anne. So that, that's been a real blessing. I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, it's just been great working with her. And so do you think that the reason that the second book that Dragon Unleashed gave you fits in the writing is partly because you went to this, made it into a longer series? Yes. Honestly, I had to, because, you know, I had a full story for Phoenix Unbound, but the story for Dragon Unleashed really wasn't, it was, it was just a title. I knew I had to create a second story for it, but it didn't, it had nothing, no elements to it or anything that in my head for me to create it until I was writing Phoenix Unbound and realized that Halani, the, uh, who was a secondary character in Phoenix Unbound, and her story of um, uh, the dragon and that general, you know, that that was her tale. That was the start of it. So I knew I had something there. And the only thing is, is that's that's pretty basic. That's not a lot of elements to go on. So when I started writing <laughs> it, <laughs> it really wasn't very fleshed out in my head. So I think that's part of the reason why I, you know, may have. But the focus originally on the on a wrong character and ended up redirecting it to another character, which made it a better book. But yeah, that like I said, there's issues there with pantsing everything. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah. then the book turned out to be amazing. I I like it even better than the first book. Yay! Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I'm hoping it performs as well as Phoenix Unbound. Um, Phoenix Unbound hit the USA Today bestseller list, which was great. Um, so I've had two self-published books hit the bestseller list. One traditional published book hit the bestseller list. I'm hoping the second one will do the same, knock on wood. Um, 
because I I really I although despite the fact that I wrote this book twice I did still enjoy the book you know I enjoyed working with those characters uh, it's it's a, I think it's a slower paced book than Phoenix Unbound because you're dealing with different characters in a different set of circumstances so um, it's not I don't know that I would say it's as violent um, as the first one is I mean, it certainly has its moments and what's interesting is that as I'm working on the third one I just finished writing um, a scene in the third one that's exceptionally violent so well it's interesting to see how and you know I don't purposely go in there and say okay book one will be violent book two will be quieter book three will be violent I don't do anything like that it's just sort of what yeah. the, you know the spirit moves me kind of thing so yeah. <laughs> kind of what trouble the characters get into and that's right and see where it so, goes from there dragon unleashed comes out soon it does june the 9th and there is a virtual book signing for it that is being hosted by katie budget books in houston and oh nice they'll, they'll do it through zoom so i will be posting about you know all the details on it and so forth so i'm hoping lots of folks can attend do you have a link for it already um yeah i do have one that they've put out on facebook but they don't yet have the direct link for the zoom meeting as soon as they had that i will definitely put that out well, send me the Facebook link and I'll put it in the show notes. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. So, Will, do you have anything else to add? Uh, let's see. Let's see, Dragon Unleashed, of course, June 9th is when it comes out. The Epos King, which is book three in the Wraith King series, um, that is up for pre order and comes out September the 15th. And I have been so thrilled to finally get back to that book. It has been a long time between drinks because Idolan released in April of 2016. Wow. Yeah. So, and for people who don't realize, the Wraith King series, the first book was Radiance. Yep. Uh, which came out when? Uh, January of 2015. 2015. So then 2016, you followed up with Idolan. Yep. And now, and now four years later. Yeah is the Epos King. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that one was delayed for multiple reasons. Uh, yeah. And I had mentioned that on uh, the blog portion of my website. It was, you know, family health issues uh, with my father, the unexpected death of my principal editor, um, the contracts that I had to um, fulfill for Penguin to meet those deadlines. So the traditional books had to come first so that wouldn't be in breach of contract. Um, and then on top of that, you have to play around, as you well know from your own traditional contracts as well, there's non-compete clauses typically buried in those. And so you only have a narrow window of opportunity in which to release novel length works in the same genre in certain time frames um, compared to the traditional stuff. So it's I true. don't want to be in breach with that. So there was a lot of things that went into the delay with the, the Epos King, along with, and I will be honest, there were there was a time where I had a really um, difficult period of being able to write after I lost my um, my editor, Laura Gasway, because she was also a very, very good friend. And, you know, 
there was there was more than a few moments where I really did not think that I could write without her. I was that dependent on her. You know, the logical part of me knew better, but I had to get past the emotional part to, you know, be able to go back and say, all right, let's let's knuckle down and get this done. Well, she had been your friend from back in those Harry Potter fan fiction days, right? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so I was super dependent on her with um, uh, the whole editing and story building and so forth because she wasn't she was truly a developmental editor. She wasn't just a content or substantive um, editor. You know, she was with me from the that first kernel she of an idea. She was almost a collaborator for yeah. you because you guys worked up the storylines together. Absolutely. She was with me from the moment it was a, a kernel of an idea all the way to me writing the end. So, hmm. yeah, so that was really rough. But... Um, got back in the saddle with it. And of course I have evil editor Mel, who is my uh, principal editor now. And uh, we do some brainstorming as well. And you know, it's, it's been excellent. She's a great editor. I've loved working with her. So between her and Anne, it's, I've had a very good experience with editors so far. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. It's an important part for me collaborating with an editor. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And when you have good collaborations, whether or not it's with editors or other authors, I think that's just super important. I mean, look at the collaborations you and I have uh, engaged in. I think that has been just a gift. And, you know, we keep doing it because we really like it. <laughs> that's true. And one of these days we're going to actually write a, a book together. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, it'd be like I think it'd be fun. I think it would work out great because while we do have very different voices, I think they mesh well. So I think that would be a lot of fun. That would be a pretty awesome project. Yeah, it would. Hmm. So I'd make you write the sex scenes. I'll write the battle. <laughs> Deal, baby. Deal. I'm, I'm the one who keeps threatening you on, on Epos King that if I'm not happy with your sex scenes, I'm going to go in. I'm going to do my own fan fiction and I'm going to write them myself. <laughs> Well, if it's any consolation, there was one point where I sent over one chapter, the, like the latest chapter I had been working on, and sent it over to evil editor Mel. And she was like, do you realize we are currently at, and I forgot what the number of marker, I'm just going to grab a number. I think it was, she's like, we're at like 60,000 words and they haven't even kissed. That kiss had better be amazing. <laughs> Thank you, Mel. Yes, Looking exactly. out for here. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, I, I've been thrilled to get back to the Epos King. So that's that's great. Yeah. So that comes out in September. Yes. And September. a week from now, Dragon Unleashed. Dragon Unleashed. Yep. Amazing. Yes, I'm looking forward to it, and of course, showing off that fantastically beautiful cover that Aranza Sestayo created for that book. I, I, that cover. I love the cover for Phoenix Unbound, but oh my God, the cover for Dragon Unleashed is just stunning. It, it looks very pre-Raphaelite. It is. It's, it's, one, of, it's a, one of the high, high number covers ever made. I think so. I think she just knocked it out of the park with that one. So I'm hoping that I'll get a repeat performance with the cover for... Um, Raven Unveiled. Heck, I just hope I get Aranza Sestayo because as you well know, 
just because you get one particular artist for maybe book one and book two of something doesn't necessarily guarantee you're going to get them for book three or four. It just all depends on schedules and so forth. It's true. That's so, true. Fingers crossed. <laughs> That's right. Well, thank you very much for being here with me today, Grace. Well, thank you for chatting with me, Jeffy Donut. <laughs> it was very fun. It was. And I'll remind the audience that first cup of coffee is part of the Frolic Media Podcast Network. And you will find other podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Look for Grace's Dragon Unleashed coming on June 9th, Tuesday. Almost here. And uh, thank you for being here, Grace. Thank you, Jeffy. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye. Take care. Bye.